Black alert, if you're a fan of Disco Nights and Star Trek Discovery, don't miss Disco Nights Live this March at WonderCon with host Chase Masterson and special guests recording a live episode of the Ultimate Discovery Podcast. If you're a Discovery fan, you don't want to miss this live event at WonderCon with Chase and her special guest, Disco Nights Live at WonderCon. Bring your disco shoes. If you're a fan of the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, then you'll love seeing your favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts live at WonderCon. Join us for a very special guest as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Star Trek V as we record a live episode of Inglorious Trexperts. You heard right, Star Trek V. We all hide a secret pain. See you there. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books, wherever books are sold. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Today we're going to be talking about remembering Leonard on the anniversary of his birthday. And we have a very special guest here to talk about Leonard. That is the great Kirk Thatcher. Kirk, of course, you know not only from his work as a director, but uh, with the Muppets and... uh, uh, recently, and then his legendary performance, his legendary performance as the punk on a bus in Star Trek Four. But he also worked very closely with Leonard for many years, and uh, we're we're glad to have Kirk with us. Welcome. Thank you. I didn't know it was Leonard Roseman's birthday. That you was worked funny. with I Leonard was... Roseman too. <laughs> yeah, it's Leonard Nimoy's birthday. Oh, oh, oh that's I'm sorry, Leonard right. Cohn's birthday. Leonard Cohn's birthday. <laughs> yeah, let's talk yes. about Six Degrees of Leonard. All our favorite all Leonard. Leonards. Leonard McCoy. Leonard. Oh, and, uh, oh, nice. You know Martin Landau and North. By Northwest. That's right. Leonard. Oh my gosh, I yeah. get to work with him. Um, wow. Well, there's a there's an entire three episodes you could film talking about Leonard. All the great Leonard in history. I mean, was, yeah. But today we're <laughs> no, talking about Leonard. the greatest, the great the greatest Leonard, Leonard Nimsy. Leonard <laughs> as I used to call him, Leron Nemo. Amongst all this beauty, to a large extent, to some extent, Star Trek is responsible. Oh yeah, to a very large extent, right. So it's it's good, huh? Oh yeah. Star Trek was good. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, agree. I really, really liked it. I liked the show. You're my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> that if if it were for nothing else, right? Yeah. If it were nothing else, it would have been. This makes it worth. Most worthwhile. Right. We'd, we'd be out somewhere and someone recognize him and go, oh, there's a Leron Nemo. Because he would get that, like, oh, you and Leron, Leron Nemo, Mr. Dr. Spock. Oh, that's just, hilarious. At, at the time, you know, he very famously wrote a book, I Am Not Spock, which he later retracted and wrote, I Am Spock. So when you were working with him, was he Spock? Was he not Spock? I mean, <laughs> he's you know, so not Spock. Spock is a part of his personality, but <clears throat> okay, I can only do Leonard by jumping into Leonard's voice, but. He had this very deep kind of, at this point in his career, he's like 50, he's about my age, about 53. And he, you know, had a bit of gravel, but a really deep resonant laugh and loved to laugh. 
but was also very serious, but not in a logical way. He actually had tons of emotion. He was a very emotional, he's an actor. And it was funny because out of the crew, I mean, the actors that played the original series crew, he was probably the most emotional person, which might have been why he had that sort of grave countenance, because he felt deeply. I think that's probably the easiest way to describe him. He felt deeply. Whatever it was, it was joy. If it was anger, it was, you know, if he was angry, he'd be like, ah, this deep barrel, you know, this, your chest resonated when he would, would kind of growl. Um, he was rarely angry, but, you know, he would get upset with the studio or some budget thing or something. But, uh, but yeah, just a person who felt deeply. And I think it was ironic, and maybe that's true about actors. Say sometimes the the people who play these characters so well, it's complete antithesis to who they really are, which is why they can kind of embody it so completely because they don't have a blind spot to it. They actually see that personality type for what it is. So I think his his facility with playing Spock is a guy who had this passion inside of him, this this motion, but couldn't show it, uh, was was close to his heart. But he was, um, it was funny because you, you talked about I'm not Spock. So as a joke for one Christmas, I drew up a, a cover of a book saying, well, maybe I am Spock <laughs> as, a, as a present. And, uh, and then I think a few years later, he did write a book, right. uh, you know, I am Spock. Um, my my favorite uh, riff on that one was that uh, we used to call that book "I Am Not Spock, But I Cash His Checks." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting because I mean, here's a guy who grew up in in Boston, and and uh, you know, he talks about you know uh, being uh, Jewish and growing up in Boston. He always felt like the the outsider, yeah. and then he yeah. discovers uh, uh, th- you know the theater and and acting and and how that really changed his his life how did you first come into his orbit no pun intended well uh technically it was on star trek three i was i'd been working on ilm when they were doing star trek two and i helped cast up uh the seti worms the eels and uh i think the giant ear that we used to but i didn't work on set was not involved with the production at all except in ilm on star trek three i uh David Sosala had made, and Ken Ralston had designed the Klingon dog, and David Sosala was tasked with building it, so I was helping him in the mold shop, and then on set for about two weeks, I puppeteered, uh, was it Korg, what was it, Christopher? Uh, Cruise. Cruise's yeah. dog. Right. So it was Chris Lloyd sitting on top of a chair that I was hiding under, crammed under with my right arm, or my left arm, I forget now, I think it was on the right side of the chair, in this dog. And then, um, so I was on the set with Leonard directing for about two weeks. There's actually a picture of me in a white Tyvek suit kneeling with the the worm, we called it. The, it was a bacteria that had grown that Krug uh, grabs right. and strangles. It was from Spock's coffin of some bacteria that had mutated into this thing. So there's a picture of me holding up this thing, and he's basically choking my wrist. And we're wearing <laughs> we're wearing Tyvek suits because the thing was covered in methicel, which is slime. And uh, so I'd been around Leonard for that picture, but I don't think he ever said anything to me except maybe make the dog look left, you know, kind of, how could the dog move? I didn't know my name at all. <laughs> but I got to see him direct, and that was a big thrill for me because I grew up loving loving Star Trek and just being involved even that small amount. So technically, that's the first time I had met him and worked with him, but meeting is a very loose uh, interpretation. So you weren't there when Shatner saved the Paramount lot single-handedly from the fire? No, no. I was not there. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there. Uh, so the next time that I met him, was officially meeting him, was I'd, 
I worked in ILM for about three and a half years, decided that computers, even early on, I think Pixar had done two things. They had done the the Genesis effect, and I think they were working on um, the stained glass man for young Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And Pixar, uh, sorry, that was just ILM. And Pixar had done like Andrew and Wally B in a couple shorts. But I realized computers are going to take over the effects industry, if not the entire film industry. And so I wanted to go learn about them. So I went back to UCLA, where I'd left it at 18. Uh, to study computer animation. And so I had been there for, I think, another two semesters and was would hang out in the animation lab because I was working on a project. And one day our uh, tech, the uh, TA, technical assistant or teacher's assistant, who really kind of ran the animation lab, said, hey, they're looking for an assistant for Leonard Nimoy on Star Trek IV. Uh, and they want somebody who has an effects background or knows about effects. I'm like, Wow. I mean, he knew, you know, I wasn't shy about what I'd done. So he's like, so it sounds like something you should definitely. So I sent a resume. I think I called, talked to him on the phone briefly. And he said, you know, I'd like to meet you and have lunch. So, okay, I went in and we had this great lunch. And it was interesting because he'd never, some actors kind of have that air of they're always on camera. Mm -hmm. I mean, Shatner, and this is not a knock, a lot of actors have this sort of like, they have a, an awareness. Right. Yes. And he did not, which, again, my experience with actors at that point had been some the well, the, the talent on Star Wars, uh, which, you know, Mark didn't, Carrie didn't, Harrison certainly didn't. None of them had that. But I'd met some who kind of did. You know, it, even when you're having lunch with them, they're sort of aware, they're self-aware. Like affected. Yeah. yeah. Affected, self-conscious. He didn't have that. So that was the first thing that struck me. The other thing was... He was really interested in talking about my opinion on. So he really wanted to know what I thought. We talked about color theory. We talked about what is it I wanted to do, why I liked production design, what I did at ILM. I mean, very, very curious and generous with, you know, I was like, Jesus, man. <laughs> I was interested that he was that, appeared to be that interested in what I had to say. Um and but getting down to details like color theory, like what colors I liked and why, it was very probing in a non uh, kind of directed way. I didn't feel like he was really trying to find out what I thought of Star Trek or something. And and I didn't let on that I'd been. I said, oh, you know, as a fan, as a kid, I loved. But I had pictures of Kirk and Spock hanging above my bed. I mean, I was a giant fan. Built all the model kits. Um, so I had this meeting. And it went really well. We had lunch and I left. And I think about a week later, I got a call from his office and said, Leonard, you know, we'd like to hire you <coughs> to be his assistant. And I was like, wow. So I go, great. I quit UCLA. I quit going to school. I'm like, because I mean, I, I left UCLA after a semester when I was 18 to go work on Star Wars. So like, well, now I get to work on Star Trek. It's it's it's, it's uh, the two things that kind of formed my uh, taste and growing up the alpha omega yeah exactly kind of yeah exactly in some ways the 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 broad fantasy version and the more hardcore science version and so i went in there and started working in his office um as an assistant but really went again that so the first day the lunch we had that first day of me officially working for him he said look i felt like i was given the runaround on star trek 3 for all the technical stuff that i don't really it's not that he didn't know it. He didn't really want to get bogged down in the details. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want you to focus on that. I want you to carry the ball on that. I'm going to. And, and this is where I learned why he asked me all these taste questions. It turned out we did not have divergent tastes and things. Um, whatever the whatever his questions, he felt that, you know, I, I wouldn't go south on something. And he said, so I'm going to give you a lot of responsibility 
And you always report back to me and you always check with me, but, but that's it. I want to focus on the heart of the picture. And he said, that's at this point is the script and these characters, the, the relationships. He goes, that is the heart of this movie. And that's why this movie is different than the last one. The last one was very plot driven. It was about, you know, they had a goal and a bad guy and all. He goes, this, this movie doesn't have a bad guy. The bad guy is, you know, I mean, Nick Myers brought this up in a meeting. The bad guy is us, you know, the, the human human nature in the latter, latter half of the century. I was very proud of that fact that, that Star Trek yeah. IV didn't have a big bad and have an antagonist. Right. It, and, well, the antagonist was our, you know, sure. Sins of the Fathers. Yeah. Um, and so I started off with, you know, working on the script. I would write, <laughs> I had a ton of responsibility. So that was the fun. People were like, what's your favorite job or what's your favorite movie you worked on? For me, it was Trek Four. A, because I got to work with Leonard, who was just, I, I said he was like a favorite uncle that I finally met, you know, that like you'd heard of or you, you knew about. But, and he was so warm and, af- and affectionate, but not in a huggy, touchy way, but it's like, ah, Kirko. He always, he called me Kirko. I called him Chief. <laughs> ah, Kirko. At the end of the day, he'd always have a big glass of a big gin and tonic. It was Bombay, Saf- Bombay Sapphire Gin, and he would pour it, or his assistant, Ori, uh, who was great, Ori Saran. She was his actual, like, office assistant, where I was more like, Production. I'm drifting down into Leonard already. Um, he'd pour this big gin and tonic and he'd sit in his desk and we'd just talk about life. You know, we'd talk about the movie and then we'd just talk about, so who are you dating? You know, how's that going? I mean, what, you know, where your parents live? I mean, he was just very warm and he wasn't, it wasn't BS. He really cared. And I, it became like a family member. Um, and so I would, you know, I worked with the uh, effects guys on, um, the alien, uh, what was it, the alien UN, like what the aliens look like. They had sure. no money. So I had a friend of mine who's an amazing, Thomas Blackshear, goes uncredited, amazing illustrator. He did all these designs of aliens that were in the Star Trek kind of vibe but weren't just bald people. Paint. As Bob Ring once said, oh, it's just, Paul, just shave guys' heads and paint them green. I'm like, eh, I don't want to do that. Because I always thought that Star Trek, especially after Star Wars came out, the aliens had always been sort of thin, you know? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. they were guys painted, heads shaved and painted blue or green. So uh, my buddy did these designs, and then this uh, fellow, Richard Snell, was brought on to do the um, the ears and uh, all the aliens for that big UN scene, the, the Klingon uh, prosthetics. So I worked on that, worked with the production designers. And he was always very meticulous about the ears. He had very strong feelings. Yeah, about- I think Richard had to do three versions, and Richard was very defensive. It was about, like, I did exactly, you know, it's like, yeah, but he doesn't like them. It's not... He's not firing you. You didn't do a bad job. He just wants it different. And he's like, but you know, um, but yeah, it was it was more obsessive than years than you would think mm. because you know the camera's not here, right? Right. Um, but he had yeah very strong opinions about the ears, um, and it's it started with that. And then I was given I, I wrote dialogue for all the all the background dialogue and uh, the Starfleet headquarters when the world is going getting inundated with water. All the people you know what Grace Lee Whitney's saying on her headpiece and what Michael Berryman's saying. All that I got to write, which was I called gibberish. I got to write. This is okay. So this is the kind of responsibilities he gave me. There was a beginning, and Harv Bennett was obviously on board because he 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 was focusing on the the real script, not the kind of jargon. And uh, obviously Nick Myers was doing the present day stuff. So the questions at the beginning, who said logic is the cement of civilizations descending from chaos using reason or God? I wrote all that. I wrote about 30 questions and I just pulled out a science encyclopedia and started, you know, what is the molecular sort of gallidium? And, and I made up T. Plana Hoth, the matron of Vulcan philosophy. I just pulled that out of my thin air. <laughs> and also, Kiri Kin Thaw is my name scrambled. <laughs> so uh, I got to write all these questions. And then on set, they said, well, we need 
something to for him to respond to. Can you just record it? Because you wrote all this gibberish and you know how to pronounce it. And uh, just say it fast. And then so they sped it up a little bit. So, you know. Who said some logic is a manifest of Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I can't do it now because I'm too, my tongue's too old. Uh, but at the time, it was very nimble. Um, and so they used it on set. And then at the end, Leonard's like, no, nah, it's fine. Let's just use it in the in the picture. I'm like, that's awesome. Seriously? Yeah. So I got to do that. I wrote the gag with the the mic, the mouse being like, hello, computer, with Scotty. So just fun little stuff that I added. I made it, I said, let's make it a Macintosh. Um, uh, you know, what the Klingons look like. I did not like the Klingon designs from one. And so I said, let's, and I kind of liked where they went on three. I said, let's, let's go back to more, you know, not the big spine coming down the middle of the forehead and not so much of a pinched waffly thing. So, I mean, just stuff that he was like, great. Yeah, it looks good. Um, and the, the name of the band in Trek four, this is, I don't mean this be about me, but it's sort of like to describe yeah, the relationship. Uh, yeah. the, the, I was 23 years old when I got the job, I think 24 after the first two months, but the amount of, of, well, the respect he gave me was shocking. As an as an adult now, looking back, going, I can't think of a twenty three year old that I would have yeah, and not trusted with those horn, responsibilities. Yeah. The, the generosity and the generousness of character that he had, and the trust. I mean, he just was like so. Ralph Winter, the story I was about to say, called me the edge, nicknamed me the edge of etiquette. He said you'd go to these meetings as Leonard's sort of envoy, and just be me, you know, kind of glib and silly. And uh, he said, you walk that line, you are the edge of etiquette. So that became the name of the punk band. People asked, where'd you come up with that? They, people thought I had some band. Um, I know that. That is literally Mark Mangini, the sound designer, and myself, and two of the other sound editors just jamming in the hallway to do that song. It's in the credits and on the soundtrack album, The Edge of Etiquette. Uh, yeah, exactly. Are still getting royalties on that song? I, I get like eight cent checks from BMI. Um, but he... Did Just, you write the lyrics as well? For I did. I wrote and know. sang it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that's a whole other story. But we're here to talk about Leonard. Um, <laughs> and but what, Leonard Rosenman. Leonard Rosenman, who wrote the music to that movie. Um, no, Leonard was as a director was interesting. I mean, so that was him, kind of personality wise, and and I guess as a director and his relationship with me. But watching him direct uh, that movie. Um, where the technical stuff was not confounding him because it wasn't about sets and things blowing mm -hmm. up. It was pretty much them walking around either a set or the streets of you know. Well, it was San about Francisco. performance, and it wasn't just exactly about... which what was his ba which was his comfort zone. As an what actor. was his process on that show for you know dealing with the actors and, and blocking out scenes? <laughs> was there any? Yeah, was yeah, it... of course he would he'd get the script. He'd sit with them, and again. The, the interesting thing about this, and a lot of most of the things I worked on, they already know their characters. They're not right, sure. inventing. So it was much more subtle. I think with Bones and well, with uh, DeForest and Bill, there was a little more uh, exploring the subtleties of that relationship. Mm -hmm. I think with uh, Sulu or George and Nichelle and um, Walter, there was a little less. There's so much fun with them that they he would let them have fun. I, I he would you know, no, no surprise. He would you know, rein George in a little bit, where George would get really big um, because he's very theatrical. And so Leonard would, you know, just say let's let's you know, that was never condescending or right. rude. I mean, just an actor and a director talking. Um, what was interesting to me was watching him direct himself because mm. he would do 
you know, half, well, all his scenes uh, he was directing. Yeah, so yeah. he would have me watch the monitor again, this, this trust. And he'd come back. How was it? You know, because it was bad video tap back then. It wasn't like mm-hmm. a full high def thing. Yeah. You'd watch a black and white thing. I said, it was funny. You know, you got the thing and he would watch the taps. I think about half the time and half the time. And you would say, well, if that's well, what I, you want. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think Spock's that logical? The oh. edge of etiquette. The, the edge, edge of etiquette, exactly. Edge. But he had such a great... I think his sense of humor is what probably... If you watch the the documentaries or the pieces he did with Bill Shatner in the last few years of his life, you get that much more. He's kind of this big laugh, and he's got that big grill. So when he funny smiles. you say that. A lot of people don't talk about that, but you watch that mind melt documentary. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's, it's so it's, great. It's the best I've ever seen those two together. Yeah. There's a comfort with each other. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 amount of band. It's like an old uh, Preston Sturges movie. I mean, it's like almost screwball comedy. The yes. way they're throwing it to each like other. The buddy the, picture you want to see. Wonderful. And I think he wanted a lot of that. In, in Trek 4. I think that was his idea. It's an expanded buddy picture of like, you know, the plot is what gets you there, but it's really about these guys seeing their roots and just Spock becoming Spock again. And did you find it was difficult for him? Because obviously, you know, it's no secret that Bill and Leonard were very competitive with each other. And working with Bill... Bill know, was at not at stage. all... You know, mainly the things I heard people bitching about were like his deal points. You know, he wanted this or that, and whatever. It's just standard. Like it's like the guy does. I mean, you know, he and Bill Leonard were not not uh, Bill Shatner, but it wasn't any of it was egregious. Like okay, we got to pay this for his trailer or something. And it's like yeah, whatever. That's just the producers vetching about you know a, a guy who deserves what he's getting and they have to pay. Um, uh, but there was no animosity there was no sort of one-upmanship that i ever saw and and leonard never talked about it i mean i think i asked him i said well you know i've heard that you and bill you know this is gin and tonic time yeah, so sure. you and bill he's like oh yeah it's you know we're friends we don't i said do you socialize I'm like no you know i see him parties once in a while he said when we're working on the project i'll see him every day but science officer spock reporting as ordered captain please sit down Spock, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. No, have you, Doctor? As your continued predilection for irrelevancy demonstrates. Gentlemen. At last report, you were on Vulcan. Apparently to stay. Yes, you were undergoing the culinary discipline. Sit down. If you are referring to the culinar, Doctor, you are correct. Well, however it's pronounced, Mr. Spock, it's the Vulcan ritual that's supposed to purge all remaining emotions. The culinary is also a discipline you broke to join us. Will you please sit down? On Vulcan, I began sensing a consciousness from a source more powerful than I have ever encountered. Thought patterns of exactingly perfect order. I believe they emanate from the intruder. I believe it may hold my answers. Well, isn't it lucky for you that we just happen to be heading your way? Bones. We need him. I need him. I mean, obviously, that that early uh, sort of uh, brotherly competitiveness happened on the series. But I think certainly by the time of the first movie... 
after they sort of established their fa- most Parity. favorite nations clause yeah. Yeah. Uh, in both their contracts. Yeah. I think that had been well, sort of settled I, I, out a little bit. There was concern, you know, when, when three, when Leonard was anointed as the director, mm-hmm. and Leonard was super smart about the way he played that, mm-hmm. you know, after being killed on Star Trek II, to leverage him coming back sure. to get his uh, directing, yeah. uh, right. getting the directing gig. And I think he famously said on Star Trek Four that the training wheels were off. Yeah. On Star Trek Three, he was under a lot of... Uh, the studio was very much on and top of him. Hart he was felt, on top of him. He felt that he'd been treated, that's the right word, um, that I, that's one of the reasons he hired me. He was like, I want someone on my team. I just He felt like it was him against everybody. And getting what he wanted, like, oh, we can't do that. Or I mean, this is what he told we me. We don't have the money. And- we don't have the money. And so he would, you know, say, like, is that, basically when I was there, I knew all the guys. And I just literally left less than a year earlier. So I knew everybody, so they couldn't really, you know, get around it that I knew. I even knew, you know. Did they like, try so, to pull any fast ones? Well, there's a whole story there, which I wish Ralph Winter were here because he could fill in the blanks. There was conflict in that the shot of the bird of prey going under the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, I have a little backstory. ILM at the time had suddenly exploded. Because when I started there, they were just doing Raiders of the... They had just finished Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dragon Slayer. And Dragon Slayer was the first non-Lucas movie they had done. And by the time Star Trek Four rolled around, they are doing like five pictures. And yeah. one of which was Howard the Duck, which was mm-hmm. killing them. Right. It was a nightmare project. It literally broke up two marriages and three friendships that I personally knew. It was just this terrible thing that ILM was going through. And so they suddenly found themselves understaffed... Because they had these five pictures, and 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 sort of like these, this the Howard the Duck movie was this uh, train wreck that everyone, kind of all hands on deck, and suddenly Star Trek Four is there, and given a bit of short shrift, yeah. and this shot of the bird of prey going under the bridge just never looked right. It just didn't, and I can't remember why. You saw the wires, whatever. This is before CG, so we literally there's a, a water tank with you know. Was dish soap in it to break right. down the viscosity, and we had a bridge and smoke machines, and it just never looked good. And they did like 106 takes, and the problem wasn't that it, they were having problems with it. The problem was they were going to charge the production for overages. Mm. And so there was a meeting, and, and Ralph, again, this is where Ralph would help fill in the blanks, but there was a meeting with a big table with everyone, all the heads of departments at ILM, and Leonard was really angry. Well, I should say Leonard acted really angry because I'd seen him angry and he was not like, but there was, he was at the end of the table and I was sitting next to him and I didn't know he was going to blow up and he just blew up. He was like, he pounded on the table and his voice was like, and just, because no one had ever seen him like that. And later I, you know, I said, wow, you're really like, oh, a little bit of acting helped. You know, he, he played it up yeah. because he was frustrated and he wanted him to know he was serious. So that was kind of cute. I mean, you know, he he acted ang- more yeah. angry than he really was, but he was frustrated, yeah. Yeah. mainly because they said, "Well, it's going to cost you." And you know, he was he had this thing like bring this on under on yeah. budget. And well, it's turned into why Star Trek Five did not go with ILM because of that, and they got hosed because they hired another fellow who kind of sold them a bill, Brent yeah. Farron, who sold them a bill of goods and did not deliver. But it, it's interesting in the history of things. Um, so that's the only time uh, there was conflict, and they what happened was they changed the um, the person who was the um, effects supervisor was given a 
kind of a mentor. <laughs> he was a new, it was new for him. He'd been a camera operator and a, and a great guy, mm-hmm. um, but he, this was his first picture. And so they put Ken Ralston on to kind of ride her, not right. take away from him, but right. sort of mm-hmm. supervise. Yeah. Um, because he needed that. Ken could do anything with a toothbrush and a piece of wax. So he, he figured out what the issues were and things went smoothly from there on. But that was the biggest, you know, anytime there was headbutting. Well, this brings to mind uh, the actual sort of time travel dream quote sequence yeah, yeah the cg yeah what was the Thinking what was the that? what was the yeah. in, initial sort of intent for that and how did that develop yeah well leonard said you know they're going back in time i don't want it to be about you know because we we had some uh, concept artists had done like the ship stretching and their mm-hmm. heads you know deforming and kind of like going through a worm a wormhole type of thing and he said i i don't want that i want again i can't do them without drifting down into leonard voice uh, i want the internal i want to see what you go through as a person not what the ship goes through what mm-hmm. i want the internal version of time travel not mm-hmm. the external and so nilo rotis was our production designer at ilm so he kind of threw it to nilo and he and nilo um kind of thought out this thing is like well you you know you go into their faces and it's like this dream sequence and i remember you know it was cutting edge uh, cgi at the time was to go get your head scanned and so their faces kind of go through it and and he wanted all you know leonard again this kind of very emotional uh uh, person wanted this personalized uh, dream like what do you go through when you travel through time internally so it was this odd dream sequence with you know whale shapes and kind of whale songs and the heads mutating and water dripping and, and there's and, echoes of scenes that haven't yes, happened yes yet, exactly which are interesting exactly and that's as in they're the, going back he they're remembering things that they went through right. in the past. Exactly. Which is kind of neat. Yeah, because it's that echo yeah. idea, which is why they're echoey. And the sound design was a big part of this movie. Uh, not only that scene, which was fun, but the whale song. What does mm-hmm. whale song from the... What does alien whale song sound right. like? Um, and so, again, that was something that a lot of time was spent on with a guy named Alan Howarth. Mark Mangini was our a sound designer, and he brought in Alan Howarth to specifically focus on futuristic alien whale language, what that would sound like. best been known before that for like Halloween 2 and Halloween yeah. as a composer and also a sound designer. Yeah. He was one of those yeah. kind of anything audio he'd done, music, sound mm-hmm. effects. Uh, 
So, I have to ask you about the will. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if the story is apocryphal, but I've I've always heard that Don Steele wanted the subtitle, the whale. Absolutely, I was there. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in Leonard's office. So he gets a note, and it's from Don Steele. He's you know he's kind of like listen to this. Right, head of production at Paramount. Head of production at Paramount. Uh, a very. Uh, <laughs> hard-headed. Hard-headed, yeah. There's a, yeah. There, uh, less nice words were used, but she was tough. And she said, I don't like, we just had a screening. And she's like, I don't, what's the whale saying? I want to know what the whale's saying. Like, what is it saying? This is annoying. Like, the audience is going to be furious. Like, oh, we spent all this time, we don't know what the whales, or what the aliens and the whales are saying. And he's like, this is absurd. Like, it's, so he said, all right, Don, he and Harv got together and said, all right, here's some options. And he and Arv had a blast writing a memo saying, here's here's some ideas of what they could be saying. Why haven't you called? <laughs> what, 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 you don't care about us anymore? <laughs> I'm so sorry. We thought you let, you know, and, and he wrote this memo with about eight or nine funny, ridiculous lines and sent it over to Arv. This is back when memos would go back After and forth. After all we've done for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like an old Kvetchy Jewish mother. And so about two days came, went by, and then we got this memo, right, got it, sorry. You know, point taken. <laughs> you know, so that that is a true story. Um, but I remember we were just laughing at, like, throwing, riffing on what, what would yeah. they say? That Hello. Is so funny. How are you? What? Why? Yeah. You can't um, pick up a phone now yeah, and then. Exactly. <laughs> I've been trying for decades. I haven't heard from you. Yeah. Why don't you call? We all, we, all that stuff was there, so we had a big laugh. And she realized that it was not the. I understood her instinct when you just watch it, and yeah. you're kind of like, but he said that's the mystery of it. We yeah. don't know, and he fought for that. And in, in other ways, like, you know, science fiction always doesn't have to. The mystery of aliens is something he wanted to keep. Like, mm -hmm. even the design of the probe. I remember when I first saw it, like, and Nilo, I teased him about, like, oh, boy, you just went super lazy. It's a tube and a ball. <laughs> and and Nilo, you know, was like, no, but it's, it's why does it always have to have all this, you know, it's an alien culture. Like, it doesn't look like a spaceship. Yeah. What we, It's a tube. Like, it's a simple shape. And it's got this eyeball kind of thing. And, and I remember Leonard was really intrigued by that. I, I kind of had my doubts. Like, is it going to look silly? But they textured it in such a fine way that it looked like a giant rusty pipe, you know, that it got. But you're like, yeah. And he liked that. He liked that alienness of it. He said it's not got portholes and 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 you know engine things. It's a tube. Yeah, it's something we don't it's, understand. Don't understand. It's organic. It's yes. kind of Lynchian. It's yeah, cool. Yeah, but it didn't even have yeah. like Geiger-esque you know tubes and things. Yeah. It was just a pipe, a rusty pipe it was with like a the ball. Doomsday machine. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. It was that kind of thing that didn't even look like a spaceship. And he liked that and doubled down on it. And said, no, I don't want to understand. Um, and even yeah. when the whale this song... This message isn't for us. Yes, exactly. And it should stay that. And we don't it's know what a the MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin for yeah. adventure. I but mean, also it's... the mystery of aliens. He, yeah. he just wanted to keep that. He said, we're always explaining it. Star Trek's like, oh, what the aliens really wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, the universal translator doesn't work. And, and, and that was something he felt strongly about, which, again, kind of kept that ending kind of cool. It's like, wow, it's like Close Encounters in a way. They yeah. just come down and they wave their fingers and play some music and then take Roy Neary off. And you're like, what? Yeah. what? what? They, okay, they're not going to kill us, but... We don't know yet. Um, so, again, he would, you know, was, he had a, like a velvet hammer. He, he, you never felt like he was a bully. He never had a, um, a, a, a will that was like, I will, you know, it's my way or the highway. I was always like, here's what I would like and here's why. You know, let's do that. And, and rarely, um, did I ever see anyone? I mean, they just kind of okay. I mean, at that point, he'd, they'd done 
the first movie, and they kind of knew he knew how to direct. Um, but he's very much an actor's director. He trusted his DP mm-hmm. a lot, like Don. Here's what you know. I want a two shot. And if you look at the movie, there's not. It's not super clever in terms of like, oh, we have these because this is the mid '80s. It's a much better looking movie than Charles Carell's uh, lensing on Star Trek Three. Star Trek Four is a much better agree. looking. Movie. Star Trek Three looked kind of like a TV movie. Well, um, Don. Uh, Peterman, Peterman yeah. who shot for, had just come off Cocoon, which was a right. beautiful film. And I remember Leonard was really, you know, we looked at three or four DPs and, and uh, we were all taken aback by how beautiful that film looked and looked for a sci-fi movie, not like a sci-fi movie. And Leonard wanted that, particularly there was a lot of water work. Mm-hmm. So Leonard, we trusted, you know, this guy knows how to work cameras around water. Because again, this was still Panavision cameras, you know, it was essentially 70-year-old technology. Um and so Don came in, and he was a very quiet guy, and he'd just go, all right, they'd kind of talk. And, but, but Leonard, again, didn't want, like, oh, we're going to dolly in. Again, the, this was in the mid-'80s when rock videos had, you know, Luma cranes were on every set, and everyone was doing crazy zoomy camera stuff. And, and, and Don wasn't about that, and Leonard wasn't either. He's like, I'm, I'm not, it's not a camera showcase. It's, right. it's about the actors. Literally, if he could have done it in... You know, two shots and 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 singles. He would have. It just obviously some of the stuff didn't work for that. You mentioned seventy year old technology. One of my favorite Ralph Winter stories is when they went to uh, flood the, the what yeah, is now yeah, the, the parking tank. lot, yeah, yeah. the tank that uh, the uh, they hadn't flooded the tank. You know, in fifty oh, years, yeah. and when they went, no one knew how to operate the the, the plumbing. Bo- yeah. They had to find some guy who worked on silent films on the lot wow. to come and flood the tank and I, I, I love that I, I remember mean, that we there was no one there who's like there's all these valves and you know things that had not been used and they filled it back in again after that's the last time I think they might have cracked it so no one could I don't think they I think were, they used it for Patriot games oh did they yeah I think or pa- clear and present clear, clear and present, present danger, danger yeah. I, yeah but now it's a it's a parking lot again yeah, it's a parking lot again I used to go I swam laps in it every morning I would get up I'd show up at work early just to beat traffic because I lived out in the valley so I'd get there early I'm like oh I brought a swimsuit and a towel and I'd swim laps yeah with my orange mohawk um, it was great it was great um I think he had fun on it too. I, I think because he felt more comfortable in the role of again, I didn't, or wasn't around him much on three, mm-hmm. but I know he felt less at the mercy of other people. Right. Um, and I think it was interesting the relationship with Harv, you know, because Harv was sort of the godfather yeah, at that point because sure. Gene had sort of uh, was not involved as much with the really at all with the the, the movies. The, the story with Gene was he didn't like the script until he got his check. Yeah, right. And then it was like, all right. I mean, I, I, you know, this is probably a little unfair, but that was the kind of the joke. It was like, Gene won't like it. I'll go to the fans. Oh, he got his deal. Maybe not his check, but he got his deal done, right. which is fair. Because, I mean, having worked with studios since then, they will literally yeah. take last, advantage. Last yeah. minute. So I understand now, whereas like then you're like, oh, man, what? he's preventing a Star Trek movie. Being made. Like, <laughs> oh, wow, they're screwing him over three times on Wednesday. And he just wants to make sure he gets covered. Um but uh, Gene was very nice. He, you know, visited the set once and just kind of gave his blessing, and, and and he and Leonard got along fine. But again, Gene was not there. But Harv, you know, day to day, was the producer of the original series films, and um, he was incredibly smart. He would tell you probably in the second or third meeting that he was a whiz kid. Yes. Right. Yeah, which was funny. Like, okay. So you're really smart. I mean, he and Nick Which Myers, was a, a famous game show back right. in the day. Yeah, the on the radio. Yeah. 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 It was it was sort of like a Jeopardy, but uh, you just had to answer trivia questions about science, the world, right. and you, you know, and these, he was one of these smart kids. 
Um, and he, you knew at the moment you met him, he was very articulate. I mean, he and Nick Myers. He's was like so a, well spoken. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Him and Nick were birds I mean, of a feather. Yeah, and they wouldn't was, hesitate to tell you how smart they were. Exactly. Yes. It was like going to a Mensa meeting with, with those two, <laughs> and uh, it was fun because because they each had a different sensibility, and you can see that in the movie. The the Trek world of the twenty third century is is a little more. Uh, and again, it had to do with the story. I mean, Nick's stuff was contemporary. Again, I was telling before we started the podcast, one of my favorite jokes is about the you know the the writers of the time. It's like Captain, I notice you use more colorful metaphors. It's in all the great great writings of the era, the novels Jacqueline Zen, Harold Robbins, ah, the Giants, yeah. which is a Nick Meyer you know middle yeah, finger yeah. to a contemporary <laughs> uh, fiction or popular fiction. Um, Did he also find it liberating to so much location shooting? I mean, more than any other Star Trek movie at the time, uh, you know, because San was, Francisco. It was for a, a pain weeks. in the neck, to mm. be honest, with the fans. It was just hard. I, I think, I, you know, that's funny. I, I never got an impression that he loved or hated it. I, um, I know he liked getting out of sets and just being in the real world, uh, the contemporary uh, era, which was fun. I mean, that was the whole conceit. Um, I'm trying to think. His, he was just when he was filming, it was pretty serious. I would say he was very focused. He wasn't distracted easily. Ran a really calm set. We had a great first AD, um, who just kept things moving along. And it was, I mean, for me, I was there for every frame. I mean, I just was his right hand guy, and because of that, halfway after we shot the film and we were in post production, and I'd done the song and I'd done all this dialogue, he said, "We want, I want to make you." Uh, associate director, um, or co you know, not co director, but associate director because or assistant director. Mm. But I can't because the DGA owns that, and it's actually you know, first AD, second AD. You're not in the DGA, I can't do that. So, we're gonna give you the title of associate producer if you're okay with that. And I was, I was like, well, let me think about it. Yes, um, but again, that was his generosity. And 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 Ralph told me, he goes, look, that's just Leonard. That didn't come. Nobody else is rooting for you. Sure didn't come from us. Yeah, exactly. We were like that mouthy little prick. Um, uh, And then were you surprised by how successful the film was? Among non-fans as well as because I worked on it, I wasn't surprised (laughs) at all. The magic, Uh, yes. I mean, if you look at it, again, we talked about this. They all do about here. That one does this, Mm -hmm. and then I'm not on the rest. They go like that again. Um, I think we were all. I think, yeah. I mean, we're all happily surprised. Nobody was like, "Oh my God, really?" I, I think because at the test screenings that we had, we had test screenings in. uh I think it was Tucson, Arizona. It was in Arizona. I forget if it was Phoenix or Tucson, but. um the crowd went bananas and they were not Trek fans. It wasn't st- stacked mm-hmm. with people who knew it was like, you want to see a movie on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and so the test cards came back, you know, which is, they were doing that back then came back really high. And, uh, there wasn't a lot of re-editing. The studio was pretty happy with it. I, I Leonard Rosenman's score was odd. I remember we were all the production team, Ralph and we were all kind of okay, but Leonard um, Nimoy he was an old friend of Leonard's. An old friend of Leonard's uh-huh. and, and and Leonard said I just want a different um, you know, the James Horner and the the uh, Jerry Goldsmith. That's I want something a little more classic. And he said Leonard Rosenman, they'd been friends since forever. So he hired Leonard uh, Rosenman. And again, that kind of goes to his character. Like this was an old friend, and and he's like, I'm going to buck the system. He did a lot of things differently on this mm-hmm. that had been, you know, sort of like this is the way we do it, and I don't want to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think again, uh, just shows, you know, goes to his character. 
And the, the rest of it was we've stayed friends until he passed away. Uh, um, you know, I'd see him for lunch every couple. Well, like, I was going you. I mean, yeah. obviously, he became a very successful director after that. Yeah. Did Three Men and a Baby, which was even bigger. A lot of people don't even know that, that he did Three Men and a Baby, because they're like, Spock did Three Men and a Baby? Like a huge comedy. And I'm like, that's what I'm saying. He, he got, it was an actor-based comedy. It wasn't, you know, gag-based. It was on these, these relationships. And, uh, and then he did The Good Mother. Right. Which kind of put him in director jail a little mm-hmm. bit because of the um, didn't work the subject matter. Yeah. I remember I had dinner with he and Diane Keaton. He said, "Oh, I'm in town," or I was in New York, I guess. And I had moved to New York. Was working with Jim Henson, and he was in town. He said, "I'm having dinner with Diane Keaton. Would you like to join us?" I'm like, "Let me look at my schedule. When, when is it?" Um, so yeah, so I got to have dinner with he and Diane Keaton, which was lovely, and. Um, yeah, I went and saw him in his office and was talking about this movie. I said, so it's a movie about a guy who lets a little girl see his pee-pee and then he goes to he gets like goes to jail. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, it's a feel-good hit real, of the summer. Real crowd pleaser. Yeah, a feel-good hit of the summer. He's like, oh, it's, it was basically his Oscar bid, you know, yeah, like I want to sure. do a series. He'd done a sci-fi, a couple sci-fi, and then a franchise. I was like, okay, well, you know that. So then he proved that he could direct anything. Mm-hmm. Went complete different, a big buddy comedy. And then um, wanted to kind of do his own thing. I mean, the other thing was Three Men and a Baby was based on a French film, yeah. right. which was a success in Europe. So uh, I think, and then he had, after even a Good Mother, he'd had a, a trailer on the Disney lot. And he had a deal with them, I think, like a three-picture deal. He did Funny About Love for Paramount and right. then Holy Matrimony for Morgan Creek. But yeah. that was... And that was kind of, yeah, I think he realized that his directing star, I mean, he wasn't hurting for money or anything. Right, he had sure. a lovely house and his kids were all grown. So he, <laughs> so in the last I don't know, 15 years of his life, he would do photographs of nude women in his garage. And I teased him. I said, you've got the life of, I'm going to model my life after you. I'm going <laughs> to retire at 65 and just take pictures of, you know, naked women in my garage for art purposes. Right. <laughs> and he, he, you know, had that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, he What'd was you also, think? I mean, how much of that, because he said he was really re-embracing religion, like spirituality and Judaism was becoming more important to him. And then, you know, the nude women was part of this whole Kabbalistic, yeah. how Sh- much of that Shekinah. was? Yeah. <laughs> Shekinah, yeah. right. Yeah, Shekinah, Shekinah. You say Shekinah, I say Shekinah. <laughs> One rhymes with, never mind. Um, he, we didn't talk about the religious stuff i mean he, he showed me the the i went to one of the gallery shows and he showed me the books and he's you know what'd you think and he literally wanted to know what i thought he wasn't just going oh what do you think like right. okay i'll listen to you for two minutes so i said wow i mean they're beautiful they're they're very dreamlike you know and i said but you still got naked women in your garage that you're not married to so that's a good thing he laughed <laughs> i you know always go for the highbrow i'm like nick myers like in that way <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm like the anti-Nick Myers. I think between the two yeah, of us, we, that's Myers. why that movie worked. You had the, the idiot goofball and the uh, Mensa You movie, haven't yeah. mentioned uh, Melville Tol- Tolstoy in the last <laughs> no. 12 minutes, so no. clearly the exactly. anti-Nick Myers. Yeah. <laughs> Pop culture goofball. Um, but, uh, and I think I think that was part of Leonard, too. He embraced, he was a smart guy, but he wasn't an intellectual or didn't come off as an intellectual. He really was an emotional person. He everything came from the heart, and and whether his, you know, gravitas and anything came from protecting that. You know, a lot of people who are very sensitive end up kind of looking and more sensorial because they don't. They are sensitive. Right. Um, and uh, I remember just talking about Trek Four and, and him. A moment that he really treasured was he'd gone back to Russia. 
it was one of the, the wall was, you know, softening. And it was, obviously it wasn't down yet. And this was like 85. And he'd just come back. We were having lunch at, um, oh, it was the deli and Factor's Deli, I think it was on over in Westwood. Yeah, Pico. Pico, yeah. Factor's famous. And he was a regular there because he'd come in and it was more your table. And it was fun having lunch. It was like, you know, like what I imagine would be like going to someone's table at uh, Sardi's or something back in the day. Um, but he said it, it aired in Russia. And he said the punk scene got the biggest laugh in the movie because punks had just hit Russia because they were like five years behind the time. But he'd gotten to go, gotten, he had been able to go to the town where all the Nimoys came from, Russian Jews, his parents, I don't know if they were his father, mother, obviously his father, but I don't know if he's off the boat or, you know, his grandfather. But, and they were all uh, uh, cobblers. They were shoemakers. And he said he went to this town. He said, you know, I'd always had a different look. It's why he got cast as a, one of his first jobs was an alien in a, was it Flash Gordon? Something Zombies like that. of the Stratosphere. Zombies of the Stratosphere, yeah, yeah. Which he had um, that big poster in his house. Yeah. Which is yep. a gorgeous frame zombie, yeah. which I love the fact that he owned it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just sure. wasn't trying to hide from his past. Yeah. Um, and he said he got to see a village of people that looked like him. And he said it was weird and they had, they screened the movie mm-hmm. And I said, what are they? He goes, they didn't, like, they were, you know, they weren't Star Trek fans. They didn't know Star Trek. Okay. But they were just really proud and happy. And he just said it was it was this great, because he'd never been back to see his roots. You know, he'd heard about it from his grandparents, I guess, or his parents maybe. I, or, again, that detail I don't recall. Um, but I remember that was really uh, important and meaningful to him. Again, t- talking about his character. I don't know a lot of people would go back in the old country and care, you know, like, oh, they like me or they like my movie. But in... in he was really touched by that. I remember he was really moved, and it was a big thing for him that he had gotten to do that and, and see his people. Um, he had so really wrestled with typecasting and the legacy of Spock for a long time. It seemed really at the end of his life he had really come to accept it and appreciate it, the difference he made in people's lives. Certainly, I think the benediction of the J.J. movies, you know, basically. Absolutely. I remember he loved that, and he loved Zach Kinto. He, he and Zach became friends. They were texting each other when mm-hmm. I was hanging out with them the last couple of years. Like... He he really appreciated. He said he thought Zach did a great job, and 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 Zach had been uh, very um, uh, in what's the right word? Looking for Leonard's approval and like you know any any thoughts you'd have on the character. And again, Leonard was so generous with that, and like oh, I love him. And he did a commercial together, right. and he said that was really fun. And he had just I think the one of the last times we had a meal together, he had just done that and he showed it to me, and then he's like, oh, it was great. You know, it was so much fun. Um, but again, just a really warm, you know, the 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 not the Spock, the the anti Spock, and 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 his his personality is form and fun and and uh, thoughtful. I guess that part is is very Spock like, thoughtful. And people don't realize, you know, we talked about uh, three three men and a baby, but how much he did outside of Star Trek that was, oh yeah, yeah, uh, f- you know, important. I mean, people know Paris and Mission Possible, but sure, his in, many search roles, of, in search of, in search of, which is and great. All his record albums uh, and all his record. Well, they're great for a whole different reason. They're fun. And he just was like the off. I mean, literally, I was like, so you know, I know about a year and a half into it, like we were near, we were post, and I was like, so. About a Bilbo Baggins. Tell me about yeah. that. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. About two years ago, um, I was uh, consulting for Read Pop, who did these conventions, a big Star Trek convention in New York, at the at the, and we did a staged reading of Star Trek IV. Oh. And Mary uh, Stuart Masterson was playing Captain Kirk, and uh, oh, we wow. had uh, Damien Young, who was playing Mr. Spock. Really I great. The punk. Well, 
we had a we had a kid who played the pun, but instead of the Edge of Etiquette, they played the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> I've seen that on YouTube. Somebody like Rick rolled that bit with that. So it was, was it was turn off that a, damn noise. It got a huge, huge That's response. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Hobbits are peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just like to eat and be left alone. But one day Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarves get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins is only three feet tall. And, uh, you know, you, you think about just the extraordinary, you know, his one-man show uh, yeah. uh, where, where he was doing um, the, the, the Vincent the brother, and then, brothers, you know, yeah. and him on stage, whether it be Fiddle on the Roof or Equus. I mean, he, yeah. he just it was such a versatile performer who did, right. you know, had so much to offer beyond Spock, but of course... It was frustrating, you know, it's like I call it the Bob Denver syndrome. You, you do a job so well and you're so perfectly cast that the rest of your life, you're that guy, right. you know. I mean, uh, and, and that's what I'm not Spock wrestled with. I think even by the time he had was doing Trek 4, he was, you know, he'd get recognized pretty much any time we were out in the real world. And, you know, he would smile and thank you. He was very generous. He wasn't like, go away, I'm, I'm working. Um, and people, Why'd you do that in Shatner's voice? <laughs> which was <laughs> go away oh why did I do it because it seemed more appropriate and I, you know, Bill's very generous I, we, we, pick love, on we love Bill this is the Bill fan club here so we're not going to say anything bad about Bill um, there's nothing bad to say <laughs> um, Well, it, and of course we've known him in the 90s and the aughts and, and he's a very different guy than he was I think yeah. in the 80s and the 70s um, let me let me ask you this yeah. because we you know we talked about Leonard but we'd be remiss if we didn't briefly touch on because it's something that I, I think is so fascinating people it's your involvement with Star Wars you know just briefly if you <laughs> talk about you yeah, know yeah. being there at the beginning the, of this the Jedi yeah um, well it's funny because I said at the beginning of this podcast Star Wars and Star Trek were the two things that kind of informed I mean that and I say rare hair as a movie made me want to do what I did um, creatures fantasy and science fiction kind of all blended together and um, I had met Joe Johnson I've been fortunate enough you know fortune favors the prepared yeah. I'd been making movies and models and drawing and making little stop motion things and sculpting on my own since I was about 10 because of, of, of Ray Harryhausen films and Star Trek mm -hmm. and shot little sci-fi things with my Super 8 camera and when I was about 15 uh, Star Wars Star Wars came out when I was 14 and turned 15 no sorry it came out when I was 15 and about two months afterwards, I'd been a fan before it had been released because the paperback novel came out. And Cinefantastique and showed pictures and a little blur about this movie Star Wars is coming out by the guy who made American Graffiti, which I had loved. Because I grew up in Van Nuys where Cruise Night was a thing. And so my mom came home. So Star Wars had been out and I had all the books and whatever the ephemera was at the time. And uh, 
my mom came home from church one day and said, hey, I met a woman whose son worked on Star Wars. I'm like, wait, really? She's like, yeah, um, he, uh, her last name is Johnson. I'm like, is it Joe Johnson? Because the <laughs> Joe Johnson sketchbook had already come out. And the and he's like, yeah, I think that's, I mean, he's an artist. I'm like, this guy? She's like, yeah, I suppose. And I was, you know, the next, so I was not big on going to church at 15. So the next no. Sunday I'm there, I know, my tie and my suit. And I meet Mrs. Johnson. Very nice to meet you. And do you, there's any chance you think my, your son could like, could I meet him? And she's like, oh, I'm sure he'd be fine with that. I think Joe was like 26, 27 at this point. Um, and so it turned out that I grew up in, that ILM at that time was about two miles from where I grew up, a mile and a half, two miles, uh, right next to Van Nuys Airport, and I lived just down the street, literally off Victory. Um, so he met with me and gave me a tour of ILM, and at that time they were doing Galactica. There's a bunch of um, Star Wars models there, but they were doing Galactica, Battlestar Galactica, and uh, he gave Where's me a Mark tour. Mark Hamill calls it Battlestar Copycatia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or Battlestar bad acting. Um, that's, <laughs> you that's know, like I love Battlestar Galactic. Oh, you all know, as oh, the author, so say we all. Yes. But you know, yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> let's not bash other sci-fi franchises. No, no. Look, I'm a big advocate for Galactica, but yeah. So they were shooting. Doing so they were shooting. ILM so they were. So I got to see all the models and 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 just kind of you know gah, over everything. And I showed him the stuff I'd been doing, the sculpts and the drawings. And he's like, oh, just. I said, I want to do what you do. I want to make these kind of movies. And he's like, well, just keep drawing and sculpting and keep on doing what you're doing. Learn perspective and and I, you know, I didn't need to be told that. It was great to hear from somebody with that job. I was never a tech head or a mech guy either. I, I was all creatures and story, not um, spaceships. So uh, flash forward to graduate high school about three years later. And I call him up. Now, we I'd call him like once a year. Oh, I saw Empire. It was amazing. Actually, Empire came out in 79. So I loved it. And I thought it was so cool. You know, wow, it was great. And he's like, thank you. <laughs> nice kid. Thank you. Nice kid. So, so, yeah. So 1980 rolls around. I go to my first your semester at UCLA. I want to do study film, and it turns out you can't even touch a camera for three years. I'm like, this is baloney. <laughs> um, so I call him up. It's January. The the first semester's over. And I said, hey, I know you guys are, and they're gearing up to do the Untitled Star Wars 3. I said, New Harvest. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even called, it was just called <laughs> right, Untitled right, Star Wars. Yeah, sure. And so I called him up. I said, hey, I want to, I will make coffee, sweep the floors. I will sleep on couches. Like, I just want to work on this because college is not going to give me what I, I want to learn how to do that by doing it. And it was funny. And this is one of those things where you go, you know, guardian angel. He said, who did you talk to? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, who told you? I said, who told me what? He said, I put your name on the list literally like the day before of people they should interview uh, to be on the creature crew because George wants the creature shop in Marin next to him not over in London because he felt like the stuff wasn't exactly what he got he wanted to be nearby so he could keep tabs on it and the, one of the reasons because he knew me and I knew I had creature skills was I had made this demon for a film I'd made in high school it's big rubber fat kind of like a job I like creature but more humanoid but you know Fat creature, big man boobs and snarly teeth and glass eyes. And uh, I'd given it to him when I'd visited him that summer with a couple buddies. He gave me a tour of the new ILM in Marin County, and I gave it to him. And he said that became the mascot for the creature shop, the rubber room there, which was just doing Raiders of the Lost Ark mm -hmm. and Dragon Slayer with Chris Whalers and Phil Tippett. So when he put my name down, list, he said, that's the kid who made that. And so they kind of knew who I was. So I went up and had an interview and I was, they, they hired me. I met with uh, Chris Wallace and Ken Ralston took me out to lunch and told me I was an idiot. The entire lunch, like, 
you, your parents would pay for UCLA. Like, UCLA back then was like $800 a year. Uh-huh. But like you, have, you could have a college education and you're going to throw it away to, to work on Star Wars. You're an idiot. And again, my parents had said the same thing. You're going to throw away college education to play with. My mom said, play with rubber monsters and fake space or little spaceships. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. And they're like, well, and they just ran, like literally humiliated me this entire lunch. And I was just like, hey, you guys. And I took the job and started working on on Jedi, you know, sweeping floors, painting the building, and then making molds and designing paint jobs and painting and finishing, just doing all the creature work. Uh, and then about five months on location with uh, the, the Sarlacc pit and all the barge creatures and the skiff guards, and then about two months with the Ewoks in the in the forest. And then in post production, working on the Rancor. At one point, the Rancor was going to be George asked us to do it, so Phil had designed this maquette. It was about the size of a stop motion puppet, and it looked, you know, giant long arms and a fist for a head, and short stubby legs, and it was going to be a stop motion thing. And George said, eh, "I remember it was the screening room because it was like five of us from the creature shop." And George's like, "Nah, eh, I think uh, I think you guys should do it as a um, like a guy in a suit, like Godzilla." And we're like, you know, what? And he's like, "Yeah." And 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 Dennis Muren was there and Phil, and they're like, "But that's that's always looks terrible." And he's like, "Well, you show those guys how to do it. You could do it right." And so we're like. Okay, so uh, Tony McVeigh built up this huge build-up suit where the, I think Phil sculpted the head and like the hands and the feet, and the rest of it was latex skins put over a bodysuit built on a backpack, and it was built for a stuntman about five eight. It was very burly, and we put him in it, and he just kept falling over. He couldn't even stand up. The thing was so front-heavy with that head, and you had to wear back then the computer monitor or a, a video monitor, a small one weighed like twelve to fifteen pounds. So it was a little like four inch screen and you had to strap it to your chest. So you were standing like this with about three foot arm extensions on, well, one hand was in an arm, the other hand was working the head and jaw, <laughs> looking down at your crotch because there was a monitor like strapped to your chest. And it just made no, it was just so not designed to be a guy in a suit. So we shot it for two or three days and I think about two days. And you, you know, you're supposed to walk through, I made a, uh, Tony McVeigh sculpted a pig guard about this big and we made it out of gelatin so you could tear it apart and, it'll, and we spent the time and effort to do it right and it just looked awful and I couldn't see what I was doing and I'm breaking stalactites because you just it's like being in a parade float so you were in the suit I was in the suit yeah yeah it was not originally intentioned to be me but the guy who wore it couldn't stand up. Couldn't stand up. So Phil said, well, you wear the suit. So he and Dave Carson could control the hands and also be outside and kind of. So I was the, you know, I was like schmucko the clown. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll be in the suit. So there's pictures of me where I weighed like 19 pounds. It's like, damn, I used to be thin. Um, uh, with, with the legs on and sitting, a gag picture of me with the storyboards like Phil over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah. like, you know. And so we shot it for a couple of days and, and George's like, all right, you're right. It's a bad idea. <laughs> because even we were over cranking, but the fingers were so big. There was no, there was just no way to not have them go boing, boing, boing. So you slow it down, they're like wobbly, wobbly. Yeah. Uh, and Dennis Muirson shot it. And there's pictures, I have some pictures of, of us working on it, but. Ultimately, he was a hand puppet, which really surprises people. He was literally the size of Kermit the Frog. He's as big as your for your elbow to your your wrist, and uh, little rod puppet hands, and that's how the Rancor was done. Yeah. Anyway, so that was that was Star Wars, and so I mean, like I said, the first five years of my career, I, I worked. I mean, the only other thing I didn't get to do was work on a animatronic ride at Disneyland. Those that in my head would I would just shot myself because life wouldn't have gotten better. Um, but yeah, so I went from Star Wars from eighty one to about eighty. Two, it was about a year and a half, and then by '84, I was working on Star Trek. 
That's 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 wild. Yeah, it's been downhill ever since. Oh no! Come on, the Muppets. I mean, yeah. and you just directed an episode of what the Goldbergs or no, what did you do? No, no, I'd love to go. Adam Goldberg's actually a friend of mine. Um, no, uh, well, another friend of mine created a show called The Kids Are All Right. All right, kids are all right. And I got to do an episode of that, which is very much outside of my wheelhouse. It's all actors. It's a crazy. Well, I'm used to crazy schedules, but um, it's all it's so covered like a Ron. I always say Ron Howard movie because his shooting ratio is like you know just shoot the actors doing it 20 times from all these different angles. Um, but you're still on a TV schedule, so yeah. that was that was interesting. But I'm I'm happy because it, it kind of shows you know breadth. It's like okay, don't just do puppets and monsters and fantasy. And the other thing I did, which I'm really proud of, is the Christine McConnell show on Netflix, which right. I suggest if you like. If imagine Martha Stewart. Or sorry, imagine Morticia Adams having a Martha Stewart show. <laughs> but instead of Pugsley Wednesday and, and Gomez, she lives with a werewolf, a mummified Egyptian cat who used to be worshipped as a god, and a roadkill raccoon that she reanimated. And she bakes cakes. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds great. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's funny and weird, and, and if you like any of those things, you'll enjoy it. That's, that's awesome. Well, I, you know, it's so nice to be able to spend this anniversary of, of, of Larry yeah. Newboy's birthday with someone who knew... Leonard so well and had all, all these great stories, you know, because we can talk about all our great memories. But all I can say is, you know, when I was six, I think I got his autograph at Macy's and I asked him about In Search Of because I didn't want to be the kid who asked him about Star Trek. And uh, he was very gracious. <laughs> he was always gracious with the fans. That was the last thing was the amount of fan mail he received, even in the 80s, right. was sometimes like a thousand a week. I mean, I remember one woman sent 10 a scholastic notebooks filled with ballpoint pen. She had written down one million times, I love you, Leonard Nimoy. Came in a box. He actually, like people like that, they would have to put on an FBI watch list because, you know, that's borderline stalker behavior. But all, you know, all just, one guy had welded a version of the Enterprise he wanted them to use in the new movie, and it was literally like giant pieces of sheet metal with Christmas tree lights strung around it. And they used it in Star Trek V. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> hey! And on a joke. Oh, my God. Well, look, Kirk, it was so great having you oh, with thank us you. today. Thanks for, for for coming down to the show. Well, and, and it's great that you honored such a lovely man who was a big part of my life. Well, and and uh, all of ours. As, as... Absolutely. A huge part of... Star Trek, but more importantly, you know, far more than that. You know, he was a man, you know, a beautiful family and just a really, and if you've ever read his writings and, and his poetry and seen his nude women uh, collections. Uh, <laughs> Not his nude women, but his photographs. <laughs> that, that, There's a series, Spock's Nude Women. <laughs> Spock's retirement is he takes pictures of nude uh, uh, Orion slave girls. <laughs> I believe they've been... Uh, Mistreated, and so I'm trying to show their beauty as there's our parody. Well, we want to remind you that you can follow Inglorious Trek experts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook at Facebook.com/backslash/IngloriousTrek, where you continue uh, the conversation by suggesting future show topics and give us feedback on every episode. In addition, if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars at Apple, and I think this was a five star episode, so you definitely need to give us five stars and. Uh, you can hear all new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts every Sunday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, don't miss our new podcast, Disco Nights, with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week, with new episodes premiering every Thursday. And finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network for making the show possible. We couldn't do it without them. So until next week, on behalf of Kirk Thatcher, Darren Doctorman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Shh. Engage. 
I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line I find it very, very easy to be true I find myself alone when each day is through Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you Because you're mine I walk the line As sure as night is dark and day is light I keep you on my mind both day and night And happiness I've known proves that it's right Because you're mine I walk the line This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.